Father, at this time of the year, particularly at this time of this season, um, may we give a pause, give a pause to remember what it's all about, to focus our gaze on you and to see new horizons of the love you have for us. It is in the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. So we've been looking at a different Christmas carol each week leading up to Christmas. And today we are looking at, O Come All Ye Faithful. O Come All Ye Faithful. Now, uh, in the past uh, Christmas carols, we got to look at the history and the story behind it and how it was written. And uh, we just can't do that with this one. It is so old. This carol is so old that no one really knows the story behind it. There's at least three floating around. And uh, it comes from the 1500s or earlier. It was first composed in Latin. Uh, Its first English version was published in 1841. And that's about all the history of the carol I can give you that I could actually substantiate. So probably best to just look at this carol by singing it, huh? O come, all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Okay, let's stop there. (laughs) So joy and triumph. We We are invited to celebrate the Christ child with joy and triumph. So why? Why should we be joyful and triumphant? Did, did we win something? Did we, did we achieve something? Some triumph? No. It's a borrowed joy, and it's a borrowed triumph, and it's one of the most important things that Christ brings us. You know, all of God's Old Testament promises that he spent hundreds of years bringing to reality are there in that manger. One who would reign on the throne and be king forever. A savior who would come from Bethlehem. One who would come and be God with us that we might know the love of God. God did all of that through many obstacles and centuries. He made this promise happen and so all glory goes to God. But because he is our God, we get to celebrate and borrow that glory. Now, does borrowed glory count? You bet it does. You bet it does. And you know that because there was probably some time in your life when you were sitting in the stands at a sporting event and your team won. And what'd you do? You stood up and you threw your hands in the air and you went crazy and you hugged the stranger next to you. And why were you doing all that? You didn't make that touchdown. You didn't hit that home run. You didn't sink that basket. You didn't make that goal. Why are you celebrating? Because somehow that team represents the whole school or the whole city or like if you're at the olympics the whole nation and so it's a borrowed glory there's a a movie called we are marshall came out many years ago and it was a it's true story about a college town and they have a football team and there's this tragic plane crash and most of their team most of their coaching staff many of their fans uh 75 people died in that plane crash And the college town thought about canceling their football program, and then they kind of rallied and decided, no, we're going to put together a team, and we're going to have a season. And then the team starts, starts winning. And somehow this team comes to represent everything that this town has gone through, and all of the loss 
and all that they have had to struggle through and the tensions they've had to struggle through to put this all together. And there's one point in the movie where it kind of comes down to a game. In fact, one play. And there's a scene where as the football sails through the air, that ball sailing through the air represents everything that they have been through and everything they have suffered and everything they have overcome. And it's borrowed glory. We'll watch, let's watch and see how the director captures that borrowed glory in a scene. He's coming back. Fox running, Fox running. Take us home, Red. Call it in. Cut, cut. Split right. 213, bootleg screen. Bootleg screen. This borrowed glory, that's not just a sociological phenomenon. It is also a theological phenomenon. Because we are told that Jesus not only represents uh, God to us so that we can know God's love for us and, and, and know the love of God. Jesus is not only fully divine, he's also fully human. Jesus also represents all of humanity before God. Jesus steps forward and says, here I am, God. I am the best humanity has to offer. I am the firstborn. I am the champion. I am the team captain. And when Christ appears on Christmas and when he defeats evil on the cross and the empty tomb, we feel joy and triumph because that's our guy. That's our team. He is our Lord, but he is also our brother. He is also one of us. That's us. And just like all of history flashed uh, before the town as that ball sailed through the air, all of human history, past, present, and future, is flashing before us, lying in this manger. Because humanity has been through a lot. 
and humanity has had a lot of failures, and humanity has a lot to be embarrassed about. But that's our guy. And he's going to come and he's going to bring salvation and he's going to save us and he's going to present the best possible version of us before our God. That's our guy. He's going to win it for us. And so we sing. Yea, Lord, we greet thee. Born this happy morning, Jesus, to Thee be all glory given. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Okay, that's good. That's big words. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. Got fancy right there. Those words are as big as the universe. That is coming to us from the Gospel of John, the opening of John's version of of the story of Jesus. It begins, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome. That's how the Gospel of John begins. In the beginning was the Word. Now, that is often misinterpreted to mean the Bible, like the Word, you know. In the beginning was was the Bible. Now, in English, we call the Bible the Word of God. I'm not disputing that. What I'm disputing is that that's what John means. When John says, in the beginning was the Word, he's not talking about the Scriptures. He means Jesus. John means Jesus to be the Word. Are you, are you skeptical of that? Let, let's try an experiment together. Let's read this together, and let's just put in, every time it says the word or he or him, let's just put in the Bible and, and see if that comes out right for us. Let's try it. In the beginning was the Bible. Oh, you can read along. And the Bible was with God, and the Bible was God. The Bible was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through the Bible, And without the Bible, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in the Bible was life, and life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Now, if we go on to verse 14, you'll really watch this fall apart. Let's try it. And the Bible became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen the Bible's glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to the Bible and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From the Bible's fullness we have received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So that was weird in a lot of parts. That didn't work so good. So I'm saying that that John says Jesus is the word of God. So why don't we try that again? By the way, first service really did read with me. (laughs) So let's try that again. And and this time when we encounter the word or he or him, let's say Jesus. See if it works better. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Jesus, 
And without Jesus, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And then verse 14, it gets even better. And Jesus became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen Jesus' glory. The glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to Jesus and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From Jesus' fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, that works way better. Way better. Are you convinced that John meant for Jesus to be the word of God? Okay, then what does that mean? So usually I don't get up here and throw a lot of Greek at you, but uh, we're going to today. Uh, the Greek word for scriptures is graphis. Graphis is when the Bible refers to the Bible. Uh, do you hear the word for writing, graph, in there like calligraphy, graphis? When John says the word of God here, he says logos. Logos, and that means knowledge. Do you hear the word logos in biology and psychology and theology? Knowledge. So in the first century, Jesus' time, the logos meant the whole mind of God. And, and here's why they're even talking about this. So in Jesus' day, Greek philosophers were starting to get fed up with paganism. Because in paganism, the gods act worse than people. You remember all this from studying mythology in seventh grade history class, I hope. Um, you know, the gods, they, remember the gods committed adultery on each other, and the gods would try to steal each other's followers, and the gods would eat each other. Remember these stories? The gods would turn each other into animals. Just constant bickering and chaos and craziness. And Greek philosophers were beginning to look at the universe and the order of the movements of the planets and the seasons of nature, and they said, this universe cannot be built on these chaotic titans and gods and monsters. There must be, they said, a thinking, reasoning foundation holding the universe together. There must be a logos holding all of space and matter together. And in fact, that's why a lot of Greek-speaking people in the first century were starting to go to synagogue. Greek-speaking pagans were starting to show up at synagogue because when you went to a Jewish synagogue, there was one God of Scripture, and he was pure and holy and righteous and orderly. Now, it was mostly Greek-speaking women who would convert to Judaism. Greek-speaking men would show up, but they didn't want to convert because for a guy to become a converted Jew, has to be circumcised. And, you know, adult guys, that's not their favorite thing to do for anyone. So, um, so Greek-speaking men showed up, Greek-speaking women showed up and converted because there was a logos. And so John starts off his gospel in the story of Jesus by saying, yes, there is a logos. There is a reasoning mind holding all the universe together. And that logos is the mind of God. And the mind, in the mind of God, or the mind of God itself, was always Jesus Christ. 
And so John starts off, in the beginning was the word, the Logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. What that means is, knowing how humanity was going to turn out, knowing what was going to happen, all of the sin and the rebellion, there would be no point in making the universe in the first place unless someone was going to come and save it. But because Jesus Christ, the Logos, the mind of God was there at the very beginning to say, I will save it when it goes wrong, then everything got created. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and lived among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The word became flesh. And this is a wondrous thing. Because now in Jesus, we have the opportunity to see the whole mind of God in action in our world. That's what's starting in that manger. We now have access to God's nature right here. So many questions we might ask are now answered. Like, what does God think about gaining power and using miraculous power to take over everything? Well, God is offered that in the desert, and God says you don't need those things to live a full life. You just need God. What does God think about demons and devils and being faced with that sort of evil? And Well, he was faced with it, and God said, I have authority over you. Come out. Be silent. I have no fear. You do what I say. When faced with sickness, what does God say? This is not my intention for you. Be healed. When burdened with busyness, how does God handle it? He says, I need a break. I need a day of rest. I need to go to a lonely place and pray. Oh. When faced with sinners, what does God do? He invites them over for dinner. When faced with strict religious rulers who make everyone crazy saying, do this and do that and you're doing it wrong, what does, what does God say? He says, hey, stop it. Those rules are put there for your safety and your well-being. Don't use them to torture yourselves and certainly don't use them to torture each other. When faced with enemies, what does God do? He prays for them. When people want to repent and change, how does God react? He forgives them. When people try to hide the truth, He confronts them. When they don't know, he teaches them and he trains them to go out and teach others about this good news of God come among us. When God's reputation is damaged, Jesus stands up for him. When his friend dies, Jesus cries. When sinners repent, he rejoices. When you try to trick him and trip him up, he doesn't fall for it. And if you try to kill him, you can't do it. All of God that you and I need to know is revealed in Jesus Christ. The whole mind of God, the Logos, has become flesh. God has put so much of himself here. That's why we're celebrating the Christmas season because this is beginning. And so be careful. Be very careful 
how you think about Jesus. As you try to understand this universe, and you try to understand how are we saved, um, how do we come to God? If you come up with an answer to that question that really doesn't need Jesus, then you haven't quite got the right answer yet. Keep thinking. If you come up with an explanation of the universe and of, of relationship with God, which makes Jesus an option on a menu, an extra, then you're not quite there yet. If Jesus is great, but you can also come to God about any other way you like, then you have to ask yourself, then why did God put so much promise and so much history and so much of himself into this, into Christ Jesus? And why is Jesus such a different picture of God than all the other pictures of God we've seen if the quality of this picture doesn't really matter? So keep thinking. Until your explanation says the quality of this picture really does matter. And whatever answer you come up with, don't do this one. Don't do this one. The one where we say, um, just follow the religion that's going on around you to the best you can, and then God will accept you. Don't do that one. I mean, that, just follow the religion around you. Just follow the rules. Just get it right. This, this has been tried thousands of times. No one can do this. And this always leads to so much pain and so much problem. That is exactly what Jesus came to rescue us from. This just follow the rules and get it right and God will accept you. He came to show us a totally different picture than that. So whatever you do, don't do that one. That's a huge step backwards. This year, all of us, me and, and you and all of us, should take a long look at Jesus Because all of God that you and I need is found in him. The Logos, the word of God made flesh. God tells us that all we need is there. And we don't have to look anywhere else. You're welcome to, of course. But you're not going to find anything you haven't heard a thousand times before. And you're not going to find anything you couldn't have made up yourself. This, I'm not so sure we would have made this up ourselves. Give Jesus a long, careful look this year. And make sure that it's Jesus that you're looking at. For those of you who are trying to decide, you're not sure if Jesus is the mind of God and the best revelation of God there's ever been. If you're not sure about that, but you're here investigating it, I commend you. I think that's a a cool thing you're doing. So many people just don't ever ask the question and and you're seeking it out. I really want to commend you for that. So if you're trying to find something to look at to see if this is true, if this is a true picture of God, make sure that it's Jesus you're looking at to decide that and not the church. So this is hard to say, painful to say, but it's got to be said. This is Christianity that we're proclaiming here this morning, not churchianity. Christianity, not churchianity. Now, for those of us who are in the church We love the church. We're part of the church. We are supposed to look like, walk like, talk like, love like Jesus. We're not off the hook for that. We're never getting off the hook for that. Uh, Each of us individually and all of us when we gather together, we're supposed to be the best representation of Jesus to the world that we can be. That's our mission. We can't escape that. But doggone it, we're all sinners. 
and we all are knuckleheads and we all get worked up and get it wrong a lot. So if you're someone who's just looking at the church to see like, oh, is this what following Jesus would be like? That's, it's just going to give you a distorted picture of God. It shouldn't. You're totally right. It shouldn't. You should be able to look at the church and see a clear representation of God's ambassadors and what the kingdom of God would be like. It should be that way. I totally agree with you. But it's just not that way. So try, if you can, to see Jesus as he appears in Scripture, as he appears in the stories of history, as he appears in your own life. Try to see that. Take us for what we're worth. A lot of goofy people trying as best we can to get it right. What you're seeing is about the best we can do. Probably could do a little better. For all of God that you need to know is found in that manger. And if you look and you're able to see that, this is what you will see. In the beginning, a pure and an all-loving God created a fantastic universe. And in that universe, he placed people created in his image to love and be in relationship with him, to walk with him and live life with him. Now, because he gave humanity a choice in order that love would be real and not be, you know, programmed robots, got off track and decided, well, I think God's holding out on us. That law he gave us to help us, I think that's like a trick to keep us from having fun or something. He's not really going to take care of us. I have to do terrible things in order to take care of myself. All this kind of stuff. We turned away from God, and that's called sin. Now, in all the pagan stories, this gets told this way, that because uh, people sinned, the God or gods became angry and turned away from them. And now, humanity has to figure out what to do in order to get God or gods to accept us. But then comes the scriptural story, and the scriptural story tells it a little different. It agrees that this happened. But then it starts saying, and so God came. And so God came among them in order to show his nature. And you start to get stories like this. There's a woman. She's sitting at the well. She's there in the heat of the day to get water. She's there in the heat of the day because there's no other women there. Because they all make fun of her and gossip about her and give her a real hard time. And it's because she does crazy stuff. She goes from man to man to man to man. Uh, She's been through five husbands and she's living with a guy now who's not her husband. She's super ashamed. That's why she's there in the middle of the day by herself. And God comes in Jesus and he sits down across from her. He says, I already know your story. And I will love you. And there's a man named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus has betrayed his own people. He's gone off and signed up at the Roman Empire to be a tax collector for them. So now he collects taxes for a foreign conquering government. And he extorts money off the top of that to make his salary. So he's gotten really rich by betraying his own people. Everyone hates Zacchaeus. If he has any friends, it's only because he's so rich. And one day... God passes by and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come and have dinner at your house. Nobody wants to go have dinner at Zacchaeus' house, especially not out on the street and be seen to be doing it. And by the end of that meal, Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give back everything I've stolen twice. I'm going to give back to anyone I've cheated four times what I took. 
there's a man. He's lost his mind. He lives out in the graveyard outside of town. Uh, he cuts himself with clay pots. His clothes fell off one time. He never bothered to put them back on again. This is guy living out at the edge of town. Jesus crosses a lake and sits down with him, sees that he is possessed by a legion of demons. And he says, come out, I will love you, and I will see you healed. And by the time the town comes up to see what's happened, there sits this guy, clothed and in his right mind, restored. There's a man. Because of just the fallenness of our world and the way death and disease is everywhere in it, he has become paralyzed. And God comes. And he sits down and he says, your sins are forgiven and stand up and walk. And over and over again, the word made flesh shows that the mind of God comes into our life. Comes into our life. Now you would think that this humanity would be crazy for this God. But they are not. Because of envy of his popularity and because he's not doing it right and he's saying things a little different than we've ever heard and we don't do it, we've never done it that way before and a host of other things. They turn away from him. They cry out, let him be crucified. They nail him to a cross and God dies. Now you can imagine the trouble they're in. then God says, I'm not going to let that stand. That was my son, and everything he came and did in the world was my nature and human nature, and the way he said I loved and the way he said I show up, and that's all true. That's all true. I raise him from the dead. And so humanity is now doubly condemned for all of this to someday die and perish. And then the love of God shows up one more big way. God says through Christ Jesus, let my death be a payment for all that they have done. I showed up. I kept showing up. I will show up even into death, hell, and the grave. I will come. And if you will cling to me, I will see you raised from the dead that we may sit in fellowship as it was meant to be from the very beginning. That's the love of God that we celebrate on this fourth Sunday of Advent. This is not the good news. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that when we sin, God forgives us. And when we turn away, God comes to face us. And when we run away, God pursues us. And even if we drive ourselves into the grave, God wants to pursue us. He's so crazy in love with this. He goes into death to restore us. And that's the good news. And that's why we're so excited to celebrate what's beginning in that manger. Amen.